When Public Opinion Goes to the Ballot Box, this week on the Science of Politics. For the Niskanen Center, I'm Matt Grossman. Public opinion polls show large majorities in favor of hypothetical changes in public policy. But are those polls representative of what happens in the context of a real-world political campaign where voters are being asked to make legal changes? Many states have initiative and referendum processes for putting issues directly before the voters, so there's an opportunity to find out how well they match. This week, I talk with Jonathan Robinson of Catalyst about his new paper with John Sides and Christopher Warshaw, When Mass Opinion Goes to the Ballot Box. They find that state public opinion is related to voting results, but large majorities are substantially reduced at the ballot box. Don't expect the overwhelming public support for gun background checks, for example, to materialize when voters have a chance to enact them. Part of the reason is that the electoral context makes it clear voters are being asked to change current law. Robinson is an exemplar of a political practitioner engaged in scholarship. So we also take the opportunity to discuss how practitioners and academics see the world differently and how they work together. Robinson is also co-author of a major report on voter turnout and vote swings in 2020 and is gearing up for 2022. Being in the midst of the action not only allows him to have access to unique data, but also to see social science from a distance and as a user. Our conversation shows that we can learn from applying our ideas and results to real-world elections. It turns out he's been working on understanding ballot measure results since he was a student. As a person who is uh, pretty steeped in the research on public opinion and who's also following along um, in practitioner politics circles, I pay attention to the, the news a lot. Um, and an area of interest with the groups and, and, and organizations we work with is very often ballot initiatives. Um, and it was interesting to me because um, I had sort of a sense from analyzing survey data about what the public thinks on a, on a variety of issues. Um, you know, your, you know, standard American national election study or Gallup press release or the Washington Post poll or what have you. And, and I thought I had a really good sense of how the public thought about these sort of, sort of things. Um, and it was very interesting to me when I started to follow ballot initiatives more closely that sometimes it seemed that the results didn't necessarily jive with what I thought I understood about public opinion in those areas. Um, and it turns out to answer that kind of question systematically with data is really hard, right? So, you know, you sort of want to be able to have uh, surveys in the same state talking about issues and you want to have initiatives on like a similar-ish topic. Um, and doing that at scale is, is really hard. Um, but it turns out um, an academic, uh, Chris Warshaw, um, has a project that does sort of exactly this, um, you know, aggregating lots of publicly available survey data over time, using complex statistical modeling to then project that data down to the states, as well as over time where that data doesn't exist or when the question wasn't asked. And pull together this really amazing data set on how public opinion has changed over time over the last 40, 50, 60 years. Um, and my um, thought was that we could use this data to try to answer those questions. And so we went about this, this process of trying to identify, you know, questions in a similar topic or specific domain as to initiatives, um, you know, going back in time quite a ways. And we ended up finding about 200 or so pairs of initiatives and uh, public opinion estimates in the states. Um, and at the same time, that's like a lot of 
a lot of data. At the same time, right, it's only 200 plus observations, so it's not a lot. But it was something to be able to try to answer this kind of question of were these things that I had seen in sort of my in passing in my work or in talking with colleagues, um, was that sort of the exception or was that a rule? Were, were there these really big gaps? Um, and so that was the genesis of the project. The, the, the idea was that it might be possible to use ballot initiative results on uh, specific domains similar to questions that have been asked in surveys to see what the comparisons were. And what we found, I thought, was really pretty interesting. Number one is that, you know, these things are related. <laughs> uh, you know, I think like the correlation between uh, a ballot initiative result in a state and the, the survey estimate is like point between 0.6 and 0.7. So, you know, we're not uh, talking about like something where there's no systematic relationship or because, um, you know, a common critique of surveys is that, you know, there is some underlying sort of dimension that structures how people respond. But, um, you know, there's also, you know, some research that suggests that actually among the public, there are, you know, other kinds of dimensions at work that are much more kind of random or idiosyncratic or difficult to explain or might be even consistent with random guessing. And so there might be a concern, actually, that the relationship between these things might be not as strong as you would imagine. But we found this relationship. So that was like uh, a good finding. I think that was that was like a win for public opinion, because I think one concern that you had was what motivated these projects uh, were examples where the relationship was not very strongly related. But it, that was like that was that, that was great. That was sort of like a cool validation. Like survey estimates in these states are related in a positive direction to validation results. The thing we were interested in, though, and what motivated the project was why would they be different? Um, and we had this view, at least from some of the initial uh, initiative categories where we saw the biggest differences, um, that it actually might be that surveys were uh, biased in the in, in the favor of liberal the liberal position in public public opinion. So, like the place we kind of started on this project on was on uh, on issues related to guns, and and m most often the initiatives had been run were run by you know liberal groups putting up a, a ballot initiative to make uh, policies around gun control, purchases, et cetera, you know, more in the progressive direction. So uh, I wouldn't say gun control, but like you're talking about like background checks measures and, 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 th and things like that, um, where we saw these big discrepancies. Um, and the we, that was the motivation. Like I, that was initially what brought this up um, to look at this more systematically. And the, the really fascinating thing that we found was that actually wasn't really true. Like, it was literally true that for guns, there was a relatively big gap um, between where the initiative, which was fairly competitive or maybe more in line with the state's partisanship um, than what you see in public surveys where support is in the high 80s to um, mid to, to between, the, between the 70s and 80s in terms of how popular it is. Um, but that was also true of things that were very popular that conservatives were putting on the ballot. So an example of that was um, you know, there are um, uh, initiatives that have been passed on abortion policy related to parental notification or parental consent for abortion, uh, where the, the public policy choice at hand in, the, in that period of time is, you know, if uh, a, a child is under the age of 18, if they need to get parental consent to get an abortion. Um, and in surveys, those kinds of initiatives are, 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 in surveys, that public policy is actually like relatively high approval from the public, relatively high support. Um, but when that initiative gets put up on the ballot, it also underperforms. So we saw this sort of interesting balance here where 
basically when you saw something that was very popular, whether either the conservative position in initiative was popular or in another area, the, the conservative position was popular, that's where we saw the biggest differences. And one of the big reasons that we thought it might be the case was that just, um, and this is a, maybe a more academic way of putting it, but like practitioners, when they talk about ballot initiatives, they talk about like the no bias, right? That um, just like no is advantage in a ballot initiative. And, um, you know, it's interesting, like my, I, I talked to my dad's an economist and he was like, oh, this is sort of like a risk aversion thing um, where there's sort of, again, like people are really unwilling to make these sort of changes to the status quo. Whereas in political science, like the term of art is like status quo bias, right? But like it's, things are much more likely to stay the same than they are to change. Um, and so we actually ran survey experiments to sort of try to validate this idea Um and uh, it does seem to be the case, like when you emphasize in a survey question um, about gun control or about parental consent, um, it does seem to be the case that when you prime survey respondents in an experimental setting, that uh, not just are you pro or, or against this particular public policy, but that, you know, this, is, this policy option that is the yes option is, the, is going to change things like from what it was, which is like, this is how you purchase guns. And under this regime, you would purchase them differently, right? As opposed to like asking a survey question that's, are you in favor of the current regime, right? That distinction, when you told people that they were in favor of making a change to the status quo, that seems to reduce their likelihood of wanting to support changes. And it most often came from people who were sort of not really sure or maybe weakly in favor of an initiative or the public policy change. Um, and so like, that's sort of this, like the sort of like five, 10 minute version of like what this project is from sort of soup to nuts. Um, and it's been a really interesting like piece of work and, and been eye opening for me and my understanding of politics. So just so people understand the details, let's go through an example. So we have um, uh, multiple states that have tried to um, uh, enact background checks. And so what does our kind of data look like uh, for those states and what, what does the outcome look like? Absolutely. So like one example that we have that's just like very instructive is that in 2016, there was something on the ballot in Nevada called Question One. Um, and the title of it was just Nevada Background Checks for Gun Purchases. Um, and uh, so when we start with the survey data, um, as I mentioned, you know, my colleague, Chris Warshaw, like he has this big data set that uses a statistical method called MRP, multi-level regression post-stratification, where you're using survey data and auxiliary census data and, um, uh, as I mentioned, historical uh, polling data as well. Um, and uh Using that data, there's an estimate of what Nevadans think about background checks. And it's important to know, like the survey question that was asked of the people, you know, a lot of that data comes from the congressional election study, um, sort of a publicly available, you know, government funded, uh, large scale survey of the country of where there's a, a large number of, of Nevada voters in that survey. And the question is relatively straightforward. It's something like on the issue of gun regulation, do you support or oppose background checks for all sales? including at gun shows and over the internet. So, so that's the survey that's asked of, of, of respondents and the estimate that, that Chris Warshaw, my, my, one of my co-authors on his paper, had is that 86% of Nevadans support that public policy. Now, question one in Nevada, and that's for 2016. 
So question one in Nevada, the vote share that that received at the ballot box was 50.4%. And now, you know, this question I granted is different, right? So th- it's this it's a little bit longer of a question. It's a bit more in legalese, but it's it says, shall chapter 202 of the Nevada revised statutes be amended to prohibit, except in certain circumstances, a person from selling or transferring a firearm to another person, unless a federally licensed dealer first conducts a federal background check on the potential buyer or transferee. Um, so they're not exactly the same thing, but of course, it never really is. Um, it's our, our, our goal here was, does our understanding of what supports for background checks is, which is largely informed by survey data, how does that line up with, you know, granted, like a slightly different rendering of the public policy, but in spirit is like very much on the exact same concept. And so that's a really big gap. So that's about a 35 point difference, you know, from something that's seen as broadly popular common sense reform. When Nevadans voted on that, it was basically 50-50. So you did find some differences across issue areas you talked about. Uh, there not being a broad difference across the ideological direction of the policy change, but you also had some of the conservative initiatives were um, kind of concentrated in a few issue areas. So, so talk about what you found, differences and similarities across issues. The area where there is sort of the least difference between what public opinion suggests uh, an initiative or a public policy area should have some level of support in the public on and where it gets uh, in the ballot initiative realm is on issues that are more heavily contested. Part of the interesting sort of quirk of the ballot initiative data set is that, you know, these are initiatives that are either put forth by a public petition Right, so you need a certain number of signatures in a state, um, or are legislatively referred. So, like the legislature, sometimes citizens ask the legislature to weigh in on a question, and they defer to the voters. Sometimes legislators just vote on putting an initiative on the ballot about a particular public policy. And so, there is sort of a interesting sort of strategic case of what initiatives get put up on the ballot and, and which which ones don't. Um, and that's consistent. You know, when we we actually sort of look at the underlying surveys and um, you know, 90% of the time in the aggregate, um, the initiative that's being put forward, whether conservatives put it up or liberals put it up, in their direction, it's over 50% in the in the polling that we have. Um, so there's certainly some strategic aspect of that. Um, but generally speaking, issues that are more 50-50. So, um, you know, uh, at, at the time, you know, uh, it, some of this has changed over time because we're looking at a, a data set that goes much further back in time. Um, but generally speaking, what you end up seeing is that uh, things that are more popular in either direction have this have this issue. So I mentioned guns is one uh, where you see a big difference on the left. Uh, you know, similarly, we see a relatively uh, large difference on you know minimum wage initiatives, for example, um, even though they still pass. Um, and then uh, on the on, on the right, an example of these are. Uh, as I mentioned, abortion initiatives writ large, not just on parental consent. Those tend to be in, in that category. Um, and, and similarly, um, education initiatives. So stuff around charter schools or changes in the status quo to education policy that are much more often happening uh, on the right wing, uh, the conservative uh, uh, view of things. So one interpretation of this could be or has been uh, that public opinion polls are, are thus not very good, um, that the real opinion is the one expressed at the ballot box. Uh, what, what do you think? You know, it's very funny. One of my other uh, co-authors on this paper who I know has written stuff with you is John Sides. And 
I actually first met John Sides in a classroom as an undergrad. Um, and when we were writing this paper, I was actually thinking and ruminating on the same question. It's sort of one of the one of the reasons that I was attracted to this topic, not just because ballot initiatives are of sort of substantive or practical importance to people who work in politics, but that it it sort of brought up these big picture questions for me about really what is public opinion. And I was looking around for sort of you know classic, you know uh, stuff you read in your intro seminar political theory around what public opinion is, I found this great quote from V.O. Key, where he said something to the effect of, like, public opinion is opinions held by private people that about the government, which the government or elected officials should find it prudent to heed. So, um, and I had this quote, and it, it turns out that John had talked about that. It's in one of the slides from, like, the first class in Public Opinion 101 that I was in. Um, so it's sort of this foundational thing that maybe kind of gets forgotten that public opinion used to be at least conceived of, and I know there are great books on this, you know, like protest was considered public opinion until, uh, public opinion was more formalized with surveys, you know, in the government realm and your Gallup and Roper and the, the sort of greats of the initial uh, survey world. So, um, there's sort of a uh, standard way people have around asking survey questions, you know, developed by the Michigan School in the 60s that give us this great time series that we understand, uh, you know, how public opinion works going back in time and how it changes. But I don't think it's necessarily the end all be all. It's just sort of there's a standard way of doing things, a best practice, something you learn that if you want to ask about guns or abortion or climate change or the minimum wage, that you ask a question this certain way. There's always been this concept of latent opinion. There's, there's always been this concept of multifaceted opinion. And so I sort of think two things. One is um, I, I do know that polls sometimes struggle, it's not always true, to match up how an initiative will perform. Um, so that might suggest if there really was a, issue, a problem with initiative-specific polling, that maybe there's sort of a representational issue. I really do think that there's just something sort of qualitatively different when a voter has to go to the ballot box, has to really think about this sort of in a way that maybe a survey is more abstract about. You know, when you go to, uh, um, you know, to vote, um, maybe that weeds out a number of people who don't real, who maybe have a positive view. Like maybe that, maybe it, maybe it actually is really true that background checks is really popular. It's just that when people are forced to think about it and actually say it's actually on you to make the change, not on lawmakers to make the change, you become a little bit less certain of your vote, or you're more susceptible to counter arguments that may be very persuasive. And so I really do think that it's sort of that public opinion is sort of this murky, mushy thing. It's maybe not so easily defined in this one way. And so I actually think ballot initiatives really could be a useful tool for people who are studying what the public really thinks. I think it's sort of like debatable to me about which is more valuable. I think there's the answer is probably somewhere in between. Um, some sort of smart averaging of the two probably is like telling a fair story. I was just going to say your, your experiments... Um suggest that this is about a kind of a general orientation to to change not the kind of campaign environment but the usual kind of status quo bias story is that there's some 
that the, the, the arguments made by the negative side are more easily persuasive or that money on the negative side is more valuable or something along those lines. So do you think this is just an inherent at the point that you are asked to change policy and you know you're being asked, all these things trick, uh, kind of uh, click in? Or is this that it creates a political environment that allows people's views to actually be changed? It's a great question. I mean, we're we're actually sort of in the in the process of sort of trying to answer that kind of question. I mean, you can sort of run survey experiments that try to do this kind of pro con framing, um, and so we're we're we are trying to answer these kind of questions in a more systematic way. My understanding is that uh, from like other work in the public domain, that people really do think that this is a factor. Uh, you know, in the survey experiments, we do see the status quo framing does reduce support, but it doesn't explain all the variation that we see. So we actually have two treatments um, that we give to to survey respondents. One is one is again, all this is compared to sort of that baseline standard classic way of asking a public opinion question. One is this one that sort of really makes it obvious to the respondent that you have to make a change. And then another one that's actually just sort of mirroring the initiative language. Um, where we don't really have a strong sense of what that treatment's actually doing, just that it's sort of saying like, hey, maybe something about how these things are written is sort of doing it. And in some cases, that initiative framing is just as impactful as the status quo framing. So it's either that they're operating on a sort of similar thing, like maybe an official explanation sort of reminds people or concerns people or causes people to be more, again, like concerned about making a change. Or it could just be that like official language and that official context or whatever is just another feature of what's operating on voters. Um, Because in these survey experiments, the effects that we observe are, you know, they exist and they're real, but it doesn't seem to be the only thing that's going on. So I'm very open to there being other things that are that are going on in these things and in in this kind of work. Um, Just the sort of interesting thing to me is that the sort of from a logical sort of just purely theoretical perspective in my view you know you have organizations who are putting up initiatives right no one's you know sometimes you could imagine that this is not the case but people are putting up initiatives because they hope they're going to win um and more often i imagine the pro side is relatively well resourced um, it's actually very hard to find systematic data on this but um, my sense is like if you are putting up an initiative on the ballot you know you will potentially have foes um, but sometimes you don't um, uh, and sometimes and, 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 and you know oftentimes you will know the kind of support or opposition you'll get and so I'm a little bit less um, favorable towards something about the campaign spending environment being different or how it might be very different across issues. Like, I mean, the case of the gun control example in Nevada, I mean, you know, the organizations on the left who are very in favor of, of changes to gun policy to, to make to more on, on, on these safety issues, you know, these are relatively well-funded campaigns. Um, so, um, you know, I could imagine there are, there is sort of a partisan cue piece happening. So for example, you know, Nate Cohn in the New York Times sort of wrote about these gun issues in particular after the shooting in Uvalde, Texas. And, um, you know, in some of these cases where he looked at precinct returns or county returns, you know, the relationship between voting on a gun initiative that happened in Maine had a stronger correlation with presidential vote than the congressional vote did. So, you know, 
you can you can really you can tell a story where there is this more partisan anchoring, maybe in more partisan electoral contexts or where partisan strength or identity is stronger. Um, uh, you might see these kinds of things operate in that kind of way where the partisanship stuff really matters. Um, but I think the status quo bias is important and there are other theories to litigate uh, as to the rest of the difference. So you have to go and translate this uh, incomplete research to people who are actually trying to pass uh, or uh, oppose ballot initiatives. So let's say you're uh, invited to Michigan to try to uh, pass an abortion rights initiative or a um, voting rights uh, <laughs> initiative. Uh, a little on the nose. What do people need to know? Yeah. So, I mean, so this is actually like a fascinating question. Um so I, I think I think I probably will spend most of the time talking about the the abortion one because it's I mean both of these are topical like these are initiatives that you know seem likely to be on the ballot in November in Michigan um, though at the time of this recording I know there that's a little up in the air but um, seems likely um, so that's a really interesting question so um, I think when I've talked to friends and colleagues and other practitioners about this particular initiative. Um, it sort of scrambles a clean way of understanding uh, how this might operate. So in advance of the Dobbs decision, where the Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade, you could really make a case that codifying Roe in some way in the state constitution, which is what this Michigan ballot initiative that, that's being proposed would do, among other things, um, you know, you could really you know, imagine that, that that's actually like changing the status quo. Right. Like in Michigan, public policy is a certain way and you're you're trying to change it in this in this material way. And you could imagine that would be an uphill battle for all the reasons that we mentioned. Like it's a contentious public policy issue. Um, you know, it's I, I would say it's like the pro choice side on this particular issue is like maybe relatively popular, but not strongly popular um, in, in a state like Michigan. That's maybe a little bit more closer to the national average when it comes to public opinion. Um, and that was just the context in which it was seen. But now that the Dobbs decision has come down, it's it scrambles things a bit. So now the status quo sort of was Roe, and now it's gone. So, you know, the argument that you could conceivably make is similar to the one that was made in Kansas, uh, you know, an initiative that, that, that happened recently, where the argument that was made is that, you know, in order for us to keep things the way they are, right, where abortion is enshrined in the law, um, you know, in particular in this case, like that, that the state constitution is a vehicle for that, right? You know, you could, it's, you know, in Kansas, it was different, right? They, they wanted to, to, to take that away. Um, but in, in Michigan, like it's it, it still, I think will be difficult, but it's, but it's moderated a bit by this interesting change of the status quo sort of from when the initiative was proposed to when it's being put up. So it's, it represents kind of the challenges of translating academic or historical research to modern times. Like sometimes things look relatively straightforward, but sometimes they're overcome by events, right? And sort of, it, it's unclear. And so I think the main thing, like, I think that'll be really interesting. And I, you know, I, I'm sure people are like feverishly studying this right now is just sort of how voters see the initiative, you know, pre the Supreme Court putting down its ruling in the Dobbs decision and post. And if that's really changed, um, because if that's changed, I think that will make this uh, like advocate, that'll be an advocate's favor, right? Because if if it really is about preserving the status quo, 
right? That the, that that you know actually the people who've made the change have been conservatives, you know, the Supreme Court, national conservative groups, um, and that we need this initiative to pass to protect abortion rights. Um, you know, you know, if that's changed, I think and the public sees things that way, I think that's to the favor of advocates. If it really is seen in a more traditional light, then, you know, you it will face sort of maybe this more uphill battle. Um, but it really depends. And obviously it depends on like what latent opinion on abortion is in Michigan, um, which is a question that we can answer with other, other data points. But it really does show sort of the complexities of when you think about these concepts that sort of do seem a bit more concrete or straightforward. But then what is seen as the status quo kind of changes underneath you in current events, kind of muddies exactly what the takeaway might be. So you're at this crossover point between uh, social science research uh, and uh, practice. So uh, what what kinds of perspective do you bring when you're the practitioner in a political science room? And what kind of uh, perspective do you bring when you're the most political science of the, the practitioners in a practitioner room? When I'm with an academic audience, I'm encouraging them to be more practical, right? Like I'm encouraging that, them to focus on a particular practical component or um, so here's an, you know, here's an example. I was thinking about this the other day. Like I read, we work with a lot of organizations who care a lot about election administration and research on voting rights. Um, and very common, the way that, uh, you know, researchers will assess the effects of election administration is in a regression context, right? Like, you know, uh, you might look at um, the, in, in the case of like a voter ID law, you know, maybe you'll look at who has an ID and who doesn't has an ID, or, or maybe in the case of a rejected mail ballot, maybe that's the example we'll focus on. In the case of a rejected mail ballot, you know, we'll look at among people who vote by mail, who gets rejected and who doesn't, and we'll, we'll do comparisons between those two groups, and we'll use like a regression model um, or like a difference in means, like comparing the different groups to see like who gets their, who, you know, whose ballots are more likely to be rejected, you know, based on demographics. And what you'll see in like an example of these kinds of research is uh, that, you know, younger voters, uh, you know, voters of color, people who are less experienced voting by mail, they're more likely to have their ballots rejected. Um, and that's like true. That is true in the data. Um, however, as a practitioner, you also want to know just who gets their ballots rejected. Right. Just sort of descriptively. Right. You know, you do care about the differences, but you also care just about the descriptive facts of these populations. Um, and it turns out just the differences between in most contexts, the differences between people who are rejected and not are not very large. Um, and actually, people whose ballots are rejected, you know, even though they're younger, even though they're more likely to be people who are less experienced with voting by mail, even though they're more diverse, they're actually, you know, older whiter, more experienced voters, because that's who votes by mail. It's just that if their rejections were of, of mail ballots were standard or similar, and there was no bias across demographic groups, that there would be fewer ballots rejected among younger voters as experienced voters and more diverse voters. And so when I talk to academics, I encourage them to try to translate the like practical findings of their work to an audience that both does care about differences, but also cares about like the underlying population of voters. So that's like an example. Um, when I talk to practitioners, I kind of do the opposite. I'm like, sometimes they're very narrowly focused, like a very common 
uh, thing I, you know, hear when I speak to practitioner audiences is that, you know, every scenario they're working in is sort of unique. Um, like, oh, I know you guys have, you know, conducted uh, this analysis in the Ohio, but, you know, in Tennessee, it's really different. Um, and But, you know, the Ohio people say the same thing. Like, oh, I know that, you know, you've done this analysis in, you know, in Wisconsin, but in Ohio, it's really different. Um, and so sometimes the uh, practitioner focus is uh, rightfully so, like extremely narrowly focused targeted on the area that they're in, in a way that's just incredible. Like you'd have people who are just deep experts in the area that they're, they work in that I could never be because I work all over the country. You know, these are people who, you know, maybe you're the, you know, expert on in, in Michigan politics in a specific jurisdiction. Just I'll never have the depth and breadth of knowledge, no matter how much time I spend trying to focus on this compared to someone who's just focusing on it th- their whole time. But sometimes then, because they're not looking at um, outside of their area, or they don't, they don't have a chance to operate in different contexts, um, or in the case of like people who are paying attention to politics and are political junkies, maybe, maybe you're looking at international elections, right? Comparative politics, like you're seeing what's happening in German elections or Israeli elections or Brazilian elections, right? Um, sometimes that lack of context big picture stepping away from your area, like I, that's something I often say to, to practitioners, like, hey, we actually did this research somewhere else. I, I think it has some bearing on the work that you're doing. Um, and what's interesting is that, you know, I think, you know, part of that is, you know, the nationalization of elections, just there's a lot more of a transferability of what you might learn in one area to another, you know, with the proper demographic caveats and changes in the environment and just sort of knowable things that like, yes, actually, Tennessee is very different from Ohio, but it's not something that's totally not overcomable um, with just like a proper understanding of politics. Um, but uh, it is sort of interesting that like you do kind of say to like the academics, like, hey, uh, you know, you should care a little bit more about like nitty gritty politics stuff in terms of how you translate this. And then to practitioners, it's sort of like, hey, a broader perspective actually can be very helpful. As with most of these things, like the answer is almost always in the middle. And whenever I do research, like that's sort of, I'm trying to to, like sort of find a happy medium, a middle ground on those two dimensions. So you try to do that sort of with your uh, co-authored report on what happened in uh, 2020 and have done that for some other elections. Um, So what we'll talk about sort of trying to use um, the lots of data that you have uh, with some understanding from academics, but also some practical concerns uh, and trying to get at this question of the relative impact of uh, turnout and vote share change um, and uh, what the big changes were. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's funny. Like, I think this kind of question is actually like the question we were trying to answer, um, like the report, the reports that we've done on the on like on the elections have sort of been tongue in cheek like what happened in the 2020 election like like what's going on what happened um but it has a sort of forebearer in traditional political science so like you know who votes like a classic book trying to like literally just describe you know what are the difference between voters and non-voters and these kinds of questions um have just are foundational questions that we know much less about than we would like in any certain terms. So 
you know, that that book was written, you know, largely with census data um, on uh, from the uh, voting and registration supplement of the of the CPS. The fact that we return to it, I think, suggests that it's like not necessarily an open and shut question, um, but it's foundational. You know, like who votes in American elections is really important. And, you know, even beyond that, this question of just like then conditional on who votes who supports which type of candidate and at what rate and how that's changed over time is actually like both a a thing of academic interest. Like, you know, you're trying to estimate these quantities, you're trying to understand things in broad terms, but it's also just, hap- you know, makes a lot of sense. It's also something that practitioners really care about. Um, the like difference, I think, is that like, we obviously bring a ton more data to bear on this question. So, you know, at Catalyst, like our major product what we focus around is the voter file which is a you know a a conglomeration of like 51 state voter registration databases that we've harmonized and pulled together um you know appending demographic modeling to try to estimate the demographic composition of the electorate on a number of different um uh, axes and dimensions um and then supplementing that data with large-scale survey data and the most granular, widespread, available data on election results from precincts all over the country that we then have to just have an entire team associating the individual-level election results and those precincts with precincts in the voter file, which actually are different quantities. Um, so it's actually like a very complicated process um, where we're combining all this stuff together, where we're trying to answer this like really simple but really hard question which is just you know who votes in american elections and for which candidates and so i think it's a cool project because it's continuing this tradition in political science of kind of asking this sort of basic question that allows us to answer this very simple question which you know is of extreme importance which is like in the 2012 election you know what percent of voters who are white and who don't have a four-year college degree voted for barack obama Then in the 2016 election, that same demographic group, though it's changed somewhat, it's like a slightly smaller share of the electorate as, you know, the electorate gets more diverse, as college education attainment increases, Um, you know, how that group then changes their sentiment towards voting for Hillary Clinton, right? And then again in 2020, um, you know, how that group then decides, you know, how they're going to vote for Joe Biden. And telling that trajectory is just like of extreme importance to understanding politics um, and quantifying that and how that's different in the Rust Belt versus in the Sun Belt. Um, uh, you know, those kinds of questions are really, really important to thinking about the electorate. And I think there's actually a case that um, misunderstanding the electorate can have a pretty important impact on campaign strategy. So in, um, or just the idea of where the electorate is. So, you know, there's this classic book called The Emerging Democratic Majority um, by Rui Teixeira and John Judas, where, you know, they sort of, um, I mean, it, it's very, when you read the book, as, as you know, a few have, I guess, um, it sort of seems to be like the political version of Capital by Emanuel Says or Thomas Piketty. Um, you know, they are more nuanced, but the sort of driving force around the book was just that, um, the electorate was going to get a lot more diverse, and that was going to lead to this potential for Democrats to have a permanent majority um, that was a you know growing, diverse, supportive Democratic base. 
um, you know, that was uh, alongside a, you know, white, you know, working class, in this case, operationalized by voters without a four-year college degree, uh, you know, levels of support that would, uh, you know, provide Democrats a governing majority uh, for, for decades or, or in the next decade or something like that. Um, and part of the issue there is that, like, some of that intelligence was driven by exit polls, which suggested that the people who vote in presidential and midterm elections were younger, more diverse, and better educated than our data or census data had suggested. And I wouldn't say that, like, our, we had a new take on this. You know, Mike McDonald had written a paper about this in Public Opinion Quarterly in 2004. So, you know, it wasn't the first case um, that, this, that, 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 that this had been brought up, though obviously we're bringing like a ton more data, a ton more modeling across a lot of different areas to this kind of question. Um, but like you can imagine that if you see an electorate or think about a coalition of voters, and this actually is sort of true, like popular commentary about President Obama's coalition was that it was a young, cosmopolitan, well-educated, diverse, um, you know, a coalition that needed to be reassembled in 2016 by Hillary Clinton. And this was something that was said on, uh, you know, on election night in 2012 and was something that even I had misperceptions about heading into the 2016 election before, you know, we were researching this very basic question of like, you know, what percent of the voters in, uh, you know, Wisconsin are white or in Ohio or Florida are white and found this big discrepancy, at least in political, you know, practical terms with what the exit polls had to say. And so it actually is really important to try to adjudicate and get specific answers in some of these questions because, um, you know, people interpret elections and uh, use their popular understanding of why elections went the way they did to then change how they act in politics. Like it's an equilibrium, right? Um, Like something happens and then you learn something new or something changes and it changes the way that people act. So the report was also um, written with the support of democratic or left-leaning interest groups. um, And it kind of came in the wake of a lot of discussion of uh, Democrats losing Hispanic support uh, and gaining white educated support as kind of a dominant narrative of what happened in 2022. So, or 2020. So presumably you would, you know, you, you got you would get the same answers uh, to the same questions, regardless of who uh, was in support of the report. Um, but the framing seemed to be quite different, um, and to kind of reflect some of the concerns of kind of the democratic reaction to that dominant kind of narrative. So, I guess talk about how you deal how you deal with that. How do you deal with the framing to to make it useful to to people who need to hear the message, but also uh, are concerned with how how that message sounds. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, I think there are two things. You know, I, I I generally think that this process that for this report that we put together, I would say, is very similar to peer review, right? Um, you know, I I haven't gone through the peer review process, but I have to imagine that when you do, um, you know, sometimes the paper or the analysis changes totally. Like maybe they found some totally like damning coding error or analytical error or, but more often than not, I have to imagine they confirm that the research is like on solid ground. Um, but, you know, they're like, you should think, you should talk about this other thing that's like, that, that you kind of pushed aside that this, this, this is way more nuanced about. 
Um, or you talk about it in this way, but when you talk about it, you kind of make it seem that X is the case when really it's it's more like Y or Z. Um, and I don't again, I don't know if it's people like, you know, uh, sort of like trying to be kind to their reviewers, but like I have heard from people that the papers do get better after review, um, though I assume people are mad that it takes a while. Um, you know, we're not under those same time constraints, but I think it's really important to put your ideas and thoughts and reactions um, in front of people who are, you know, experts in this area. So like, you know, when we are, um, and in fact, some people who we did speak to are, you know, pre-academics or practitioner academics. Um, and you know, so in the case of the Latino vote, you know, we worked um, very closely with Matt Barreto, who's a professor of political science at UCLA and is a you know, extremely well-regarded scholar on Latino public opinion. And we worked with Carlos Odio at Equis Research, who runs an organization where their entire focus, you know, is on the Latino electorate. And they're just much, you know, we're generalists at Catalyst. You know, we're studying, you know, as I mentioned, like every state, every demographic group, you know, it's really hard for us to get the story right. But these people are untapped, you know, if we don't talk to them, untapped reserves of knowledge that we would never hope to have on these particular issues. And so they look at this report and ask these important questions, you know, so, you know, in the case of the African, you know, the black vote, African-American vote, you know, we had two stories that you could tell with the data. One is a story where like the African-American electorate, like the, the number of African-American voters went up. Um, and another story, which like is confirmed in our data and in somewhat in others, is that African-American voters, you know, particularly African-American men, um, and, and younger African Americans, um, you know, voted more for Republicans than they had in the past. And you could tell a story that's, um, uh, that, that you could tell some sort of unnuanced story that just focuses on that. But actually, when you look at these things in tandem, what you realize is kind of like a really interesting nuance, which is that actually it seems like the sort of uh, marginal African-American voter in elections, right? The kind of African-American voter who votes in the 2020 election, but hadn't voted in the 2016 election. So like people who in an election in 2020 that truly was very high turnout, you know, in historical terms, and certainly, you know, quite a bit higher in turnout overall than past presidential elections, that that voter is in fact more conservative. But African-American voters are still a very democratic group, such that you gain many more votes, even though you're adding voters, quote unquote, to the electorate, who might be a little bit less supportive of Democrats. And if you don't tell that kind of story, you kind of miss the point, right, from a pract practical perspective. And so like all these kind of things can be true. And so I think working with these kind of groups, it's, it really is akin to a peer review. Um, it, uh, in this case, you know, we have relationships with like close um, allied organizations. So what are the uh, first analyses you expect to run after 2022? Um, what are the big kind of open questions that, that you think will, will face us this year? Yeah. So, I mean, um, so we did sort of a similar project in Virginia in 2021 and sort of one of the things that stuck out, um, and this was sort of true of our analysis of the 2018 elections is that, um, you know, the political science understanding of midterm elections sort of as being best characterized by kind of like a uniform swing among demographic groups, relatively speaking, um, and across geographies was something that was, you know, pretty apparent when we looked at at the data there. Um, and 
I mean, what the, the interesting part, obviously, there is that like that's not the reason why 2020 was so interesting was that there were sort of these disparate trends going on. You know, maybe if you looked at just the election results in total, you would say like Joe Biden outperformed Hillary Clinton, but under the hood, you see all these different patterns. Like, you know, he did better with white college educated voters. He did slightly better with white voters without a degree. He did slightly worse with black voters, you know, you know, quite a bit in aggregate terms with Latino voters. And it, it sort of tells the story, but there's a lot of things that are going on in like various different directions, right? But in a uniform swing story, things are kind of moving in this sort of like very relatively consistent direction that might be more of a sign of, again, a nationalized mood around elections or something like that. And that's what we saw in Virginia on top of a modest Republican turnout advantage. So I think like the first thing we're going to really, really look at is, I mean, we'll have some, I think, inkling about this from early voting returns, perhaps, is just is that relative turnout Republicans, turnout advantage Republicans had in the 2021 elections in Virginia, you know, does that still hold? Um, you know, I think there's sort of is a theory now that, again, after the Dobbs decision, that Democrats are more engaged. Um, and thus, you might expect that gap in turnout where Republicans were more engaged and and uh, turned out at higher rates than Democrats, um, that that gap might close. And so that's actually one of like the first things that I'm like most interested in, because um, uh, one of the main uh, sort of operational understandings of why a president's party, you know, why their vote share declines in the in the election following their their win of the White House in that midterm election, I think a good amount of it is like an engaged opposition um, that uh, benefits from uh, you know uh, you know thermostatic anger or engagement or. Um, or that or that kind of thing, um, and, and it has a turnout advantage. And right now we do see some evidence that Democrats are more engaged. Like I believe the enthusiasm gap in public surveys, um, uh, you know, how en enthusiastic you are about voting or vote likelihood is um, has narrowed to be more even, whereas previously Republicans had an advantage. And then, of course, in some of these low turnout special elections that had been more favorable to Republicans in the past, we have only four unfortunately, but Democrats have done have done better in those. So um, that sort of is like a, a, a big component, um, like the, the partisan uh, turnout environment, like is something that we'll look at right away. And, um, you know, it's still a hard question to answer, but, you know, we're working off of, you know, individual level turnout data or early voting data um, at, from administrative sources. Are we seeing sort of the trends that sort of started in the 2016 election, somewhat continued though in a different way in 2020. Are we seeing those those change? Like are Democrats going to do about the same or slightly worse with um, you know, uh, Latino voters, for example, or does it look like it's relatively unchanged? Um, or if they drop, do they drop more than other groups or do we basically see sort of relatively uniform declines? So um, we'll be able to see some of that, hopefully, in some of the early election results. Um, it was certainly something you could sort of see early on in the 2020 election results, like large shifts in the Rio Grande Valley or in Miami-Dade County sort of presaged in some way, like the changes that we saw with Latino voters that you know we confirmed the extent of when we had everything together, but it certainly was able to tell the tale. Um, if we, you know, you could look at 
precinct results or something like that from very Latino areas or very white, you know, without a four-year college degree areas to try to answer some of these questions. And um, that's certainly something that like right away we'll be looking at to try to tell some sort of initial story of what's going on. Um, and certainly compare that to what other sources are seeing, like the exit polls or the AP vote cast or, um, or, or other people who are, who are looking at other uh, ways of estimating the electorate, whether it's from standalone surveys, like um, what Mapparetto and his colleagues do. So uh, you said it's like uh, peer review, but you're, you're, you're reviewed by uh, all Democrats on the practitioner side are people who have more sympathies with Democrats. And even if you tried to go out of your way to find Republicans in academia, you would find uh, mostly Democrats as well. And there's a, <laughs> a pretty clear uh, sort of stronger tilt and relationship between the practitioner and um, academic uh, side on the Democratic side. How, how do you think that colors kind of how this joint field of pracademics has, has developed and how, th- how, how different would, would our understandings look if we were all on the Republican side? Hmm, that's a very interesting question. So I think the first part that comes to mind is just that, um, you know, that, that close tie will mean that like there will be some talented people who maybe might have gone into academia who are now practitioners. So I think like my colleague Yair, like he's a student of Andrew Gelman's, like he probably could do whatever he wanted. But now that there are more industry jobs, you know, a good amount are in politics, he's able to, you know, use his talents to, you know, you know, leverage uh, his knowledge and understanding and talents to improve our understanding of politics on the Democratic side. And there, you know, a number of other people who've, you know, had stints in democratic politics or have, have totally made a career change. Um, you know, like David Nickerson is an example. Um, Aaron Hartman, Aaron Strauss. These are all people who are have academic backgrounds who've um, made contributions uh, in democratic politics. Um, so I think there's sort of that sort of right away. Like, um, and especially as um, there are the amount of data in politics has grown, I think Democrats have been able to leverage those types of people with those types of skills to, to do that kind of work. So I think like that is like a, a very clear uh, component. I don't really know a ton about Republicans. I mean, I have, um, I have tracked, you know, um, academic papers that have been done either in coordination with conservative groups or by Republican scholars. Um, and, you know, they, they do attempt to sort of try to put together a similar methodology, right? So there's like, you know, a field experiment done by the Cato Institute where they send pocket copies of the constitution, you know, to students and see if their views about liberty change. And, you know, I'm, I don't know anything about this project, but I'm sure it's something like the Cato Institute always sends pocket constitutions to students on college campuses or in a direct mailing. And we would love to know what the impact of that is, right? Um, and so they're kind of trying to answer similar questions. Um, I think, you know, one area where I do think Democrats do have an advantage in this case is in survey research. Um, like, I just think the changes in the underlying environment of survey response have just made it a lot more difficult to analyze surveys. And I think like a really straightforward, like rigorous, real way without a strong background in statistics and this kind of auxiliary data that we have in the voter file. And, um, you know, if you're, if you don't have that kind of talent, 
um, I think you do end up um, uh, having a harder time dealing with with things in, in this kind of environment. So, I mean, I remember, you know, um, sometimes at uh, sort of open, there used to be a conference, I mean, it still does exist sometimes, called Roots Camp. There would always be like a couple of Republicans who would, you know, come and listen and see what people were doing or who were Republicans, but maybe said like, I, you know, I'm a Yale student or something like that. Um, but really, you know, they're a consultant for the NRSC or something like that. Um, and they're coming in to try to learn stuff about what Democrats are doing because there just isn't that level of, of people or insight or enough people who have bought into that. Um, and so in, in some way, uh, the cultures are very different. There's a lot more to learn. The Science of Politics is available biweekly from the Niskanen Center. I'm your host, Matt Grossman. If you like this discussion, I recommend checking out these episodes. How much are polls misrepresenting Americans? The role of political science in American life? The past and future of polling? Is demographic and geographic polarization overstated? And compromise still works in Congress and with voters. Please check out When Mass Opinion Goes to the Ballot Box and then listen in next time. 